thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello. As you heard during our end-of-year episode back on December 31st, this is the podcast's fifth year in show business, so we're shifting our release schedule to the fives. That's the 5th, 15th, and 25th of every month, and at 5 a.m. Pacific time. But for this, the very first episode of the year, we're playing an intermission show. Otherwise, we would have had to work straight through the holidays instead of taking a well-deserved break. So what you're about to hear is from our Happy Hour series on Patreon. Patreon, you may recall, is a social media platform that allows enthusiastic listeners to financially support the show while gaining access to exclusive content like these Happy Hour sessions, among many other offerings. This particular happy hour, recorded in mid-2021, is with one of only two pilots to ever barricade a stricken FA-18 aboard a carrier at sea. Now, if you want to view the video we refer to repeatedly during our discussion, well, then head on over to patreon.com, search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, sign up at the flight lead tier or higher, then click on the happy hour folder where you can find this and dozens of other compelling discussions with military aviation heroes. So enjoy this intermission episode, and we'll be back mid-month to officially kick off 2022 with our first featured show. All right, well, nice to meet you, Oyster. Carl, how do you pronounce your last name? Osterly. Osterly, that's not that hard. Yeah. All right. I guess that's why they call you Oyster. It was hard for my DI, that's why it's Oyster. (laughs) Well, so you did AOCS, I take it? I did. Yeah? Yeah. What year was that? That was 1985, 4085, Staff Sergeant. 85. United States Marine Corps. Okay. I was in, let's see, was I even in high school by then? I hate to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I was a freshman. Uh, yeah. but, okay, Marine Corps first? No, Staff Sergeant Carney in the United States Marine Corps was my oh, oh, gotcha. okay. training. Got to say. All right. Whole thing. <laughs> well, just so we keep people interested that are maybe watching or listening, You're particularly, at least in my world, well-known for being one of, I think, only two FA-18 barricades aboard a carrier, and that was in 1999, yeah? Yeah, June 23rd, to be exact. I always remember that. Okay, I imagine. Now, the Marines had one, too. Who was first? You know, I think probably the Marine was, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not that familiar. I had always heard there were two, but mine was the one that mattered to me. Yeah, well, clearly. Yeah. All right. So I only know of you from that video and reputation, which of course is sterling, but you sent me the video, which if we can share the screen, will help, I think, people to see it as we talk about it. But I want to know, was, did you fly the Hornet right from the beginning after flight school? No, I didn't. So I went to AOCS and ended up going through uh, Corpus, then Meridian, and then went to Intruders at Whidbey Island. Okay. Gosh, I must have done seven years. I did a sea tour and then came back as RAG IP in, uh, at Whidbey Island in VA-128. Then went out to Japan's CAG paddles in CAG-5. So I got an ATOPS call where I went over to my CAG paddles tour in the Hornet. Okay. Didn't really fly it much over there. 
because I was flying the intruder so much. My last intruder flight was off a of rim pack from Barber's Point to Davis Mothin to the Boneyard. Uh-huh. Drove up to Lemoore, rehacked my Natop squall, and then went right back out to Japan and flew the Hornet for about six more months, day only, which was awesome at the ship. You know, I could start the airplane, take it off, land it. I didn't know squat about air to air. We go off into a litany of lessons I learned. and yeah. But then when I transferred out of Japan for my department head tour, I went through the whole rag at 125 up in the moor and then did my department head tour. All right. How many hours did you end up with in the intruder? You know what? Not that I remember weird numbers. 1,988.6. You just needed a fat finger a few uh, flights. Head down a few less times and I would have been in good shape there. But A couple of bolters would have helped. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the other question I want to ask you, because this is germane to the discussion we'll have here in a moment, is did your takeoffs and landings equal each other in the A6? No, you must have got some intel because I punched out when I was a RAG instructor, another date that I remember, October 17th, 1991, down in 29 Palms doing close air support. Okay. Another long story, but... Yeah, we'll have to have you back. But just big picture-wise, obviously you kept flying, so you did okay. Was it an aircraft malfunction or...? What had happened was, you know, the high and low pressure compressor in the uh, intruder engine, uh, J-52, had been at AIMD for a rework. And what the investigation found afterwards was they took the high from one airplane or one engine and the low from a different one. They're supposed to be mated for life, but they mismatched them. Uh And I think it flew for maybe 100, 150 hours. And you know what? If it had given up the ghost about a minute prior, we were at 100 feet, you know, 480 knots. I probably wouldn't be here, but as it was, it happened right after we'd pickled our bomb, turning off target, and it basically just cut the airplane in half. The engine gave up the ghost and stick froze. People make a big deal out of it, but it was probably the easiest decision I'll ever make in my life. (laughs) Changes in sound and flight characteristics, and of course, you got someone next to you who's wondering what's going on. All right, I take it he did okay, too, as far as Funny way the brain works so we were pulling off target and he was kind of looking back to try to spot our hit and i was looking for my interval i was dash three of four you know grinding noise the stick froze in that right turn but we started rolling left and i just looked up and i saw brown and i'm like okay as soon as i see blue i'm out of here at the time we didn't have command eject in the intruder so i saw blue pulled the handle and after the fact my bn guy named dave waterman said he was reacting to all this grinding noise, and he turned around. And he said he saw my boots right at his eye level, <laughs> which take a little snapshot. Brain works in amazing ways, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> so you didn't even give him a courtesy. Hey, this has been fun, but uh, see you later. <laughs> uh, you know what? My brief was always: if it's controlled, we'll run the checklist. We'll go up to altitude, lower our seats, you know, and I'll say eject, eject, eject. But this is exactly how I always put it: if it's an emergency and you see smoke and glass. That means I'm not here anymore. So that's how it turned out. <laughs> All right. Do you guys call each other uh, every October? I forgot what you said already, or is it just like... No, in fact, I lost track of Dave. Huh. He went on to a career in public affairs in the Navy, uh, retired as a captain, I believe. I don't know where he is now. So. Yeah, and that happens. It's funny. I don't know about you. I have a couple handful of people I keep in touch with. One of them was junior to me, but now as a captain, and I came out as a commander, so I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> the chemistry just works out, I suppose, with certain people. 
Yeah, it sure does. Well, okay. So by June 23rd, I think it is, yep. 1999, how many hours did you have in the uh, F-18? I actually looked in my logbook when we started talking about this. I had 490.2 hours. Okay. You know, all that other experience helped. But one thing I found interesting about the Hornet was in the intruder, I could set the RPM within a percent with my ears because mm -hmm. over the engine, I can tell what it sounded like. And the Hornet, as you know, kind of a Cadillac, real quiet. And that whole digital flight, you know, it's trimmed to 1G flight. Not a lot of seat of the pants when you're starting out in that airplane. Yeah. Well, plus it wasn't your first aircraft, right? So you're still getting familiar with it. And there's this whole mission, as you already intimated, that you're not too sure about because you did air to mud and the intruder. Yeah. All right. What I want to do here, and I, we just met, by the way, for anyone else who's watching, listening, we've been emailing for, what, about a month? Yeah. Uh, I've been overcome with other events in my personal life with my brother and then flying. I guess you, are you, you're still flying as well, right? You just did a red eye home the other night? Yeah. All right. But anyway, we're here now. And what I thought we'd do is just spend a few minutes kind of looking at highlights of this video that you have. And I think it exists on YouTube somewhere in some form, right? Yeah. But just kind of talk about what happened on that night. Here's what I like to do. Okay. And honestly, I did this in the intruder too. I like to take, walk a little earlier than everybody else, mm -hmm. get out there, put my nest, get my uh, eyeballs calibrated to the darkness and whatnot. So as a result, on this particular night, I was spotted basically right over Cat 1, nose point aft. So I built my nest and got started right away. And as a result, I was the first one off the cat. I jokingly tell all the new guys would check into the squadron. I'd say, hey, whatever you do, don't be the first one to the cat. <sighs> Let somebody else test it first. <laughs> but that was just based on whimsical or was there some other data that made you say that? Well, because of what's going to happen here. The only reason I was first on the cat was because I always walked early and got myself ready. Okay. A shirt asked me if I was up. I'm like, yeah, I'm up. Everybody else was behind me still starting or in their process of getting started or whatnot. What was your mission this night? It was just an intercept, basic. I think we left on cruise on like the 19th, so we'd been out four or five days, and we were about six, 700 miles northeast of Hawaii. So you're a long ways from an airfield. Yeah, so we were technically blue water ops. I mean, if you wanted to divert and you could do it, certainly we could make that happen, but yeah, we were using blue water fuel states and whatnot. So, you know, I just go through the normal routine on the cat, wiped it out, everything looked good turn on my lights and no kidding, like halfway down the stroke, huge explosion. And I could tell in my mirrors, you know, just from the behind right there, there was a big yeah. flash, something happened, huge boom in the cockpit. And I don't know how else to describe it other than my whole world was just in that pane of glass in front of me. And I'm looking at alpha airspeed and altitude. Yeah. We'll jump to the end of the story here in a sense. Obviously, we all know how this turns out because here you are today. Thank you. But what was the boom? What caused the consternation here? As it turned out, when I looked back on it, I'm sitting on the cat or waiting to go onto the cat. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, you know, we're about five minutes or 10 minutes to launch and crew's not out here getting ready. All these dudes come running out of the catwalk and they're from the deck division, you know, they're running around getting the cat ready to go. So in retrospect, you know, I think they were probably down there eating chow. They walked late and they were rushing through the whole process to get the cat ready. Okay. You know, and I say five to 10 minutes, it could have been much more than that. But anyway, they were later than we all were. 
you and I know what happens when you're late and you start rushing, you forget things. So for the listeners, the catapult, when it's not being used, has what's called a slot seal. It's basically a heavy piece of rubber that's kind of shaped like a miniature I-beam. And it's usually in four or five sections, I don't know, 40, 50 feet long. And it's black. As it turned out, the deck crew or the cat crew had left the slot seal in the cat track. So as the launch bar went down the cat stroke, it just peeled that thing up. I had the slot seal ingested in both engines, not just one. And this isn't like little bits of rubber that the engine can handle. Like you said, this is heavy duty stuff. I'm thinking like when you cut up a car tire, like thicker than that though, even, I mean, this is. Yeah, I've got two pieces. This piece was in the right intake. There you go. And this piece was in the right intake as well. Wow. It stayed there the entire flight, clearly, because here you are holding them. Well, yeah. And when I got airborne and kind of got my wits about me, I remember taking a sneak peek at the engine instruments. And the right one seemed fine, but the left one was frozen at like 40, 41. I can't remember exactly what the number was, but it was not even flight idle. In my mind, okay, the left engine's crapped the bed. You know, it's trashed. And it wasn't until later that we realized that the right engine wasn't working so hot either. And I assume as we flew around for 45 minutes, this thing just kept feeding into the... <laughs> like a wood chipper? Exactly. <laughs> Honestly, when I landed, well, one of the LSOs, when I waved off, a friend of mine, a guy named Gadget, said that he saw through the lights of the tower that I had a like a 40 or 50 foot piece of slot seal on the left side of the airplane. So it was still stuck in the engine. And the whole side of the airplane was black from being beat up by this piece of slot seal. The deck crew threw it overboard while they were trying to get me out of the wires. So that engine was trashed. I was a maintenance officer at the time, and I used to have pictures of the engine, the right engine, the one that was working. I think they told me it had like 340 what they called major hits. When I looked at it, I'm like, holy crap, because it was trashed. I don't know how it kept running, but I'm glad it did. A better interviewer would wait till the end of the story and ask you this, but I don't want to forget. So whatever happened to this aircraft? Did it go back into operation later? Good question. It went down in the hangar bay. And honestly, from the barricade, it dug into the flight controls, the leading edge flaps and the tail and all that stuff. Did a lot of damage. Maintenance crew, uh, civilians flew out from uh, San Diego. It was in the hangar for probably a month, month and a half. I was maintenance check pilot. So I got to fly the FCF on it about a month, month and a half later. The funny part is the boss was great. I started up, do all the profile after I started, and they taxied me out to Cat 3. And then they realized what was going on, and they wrapped Cat 3, and they took me over to Cat 1 and shot me off Cat I thought that was pretty cool. (laughs) That is cool. And again, this would have been better at the end, but there's no mystery to this story, all right? Everyone, Oyster takes a bunch of damage to his aircraft. He flies around for a little while, barricades, one of only two in the Hornet ever. And now he gets redemption in that aircraft on an FCF. That's really cool. All right, so getting back to this video. So you go off this thing in the tower where is the Airboss, right? So the guy in the right seat is watching the bow, the guy in the left seat of the Airboss and the Miniboss. And as I understand it, they'll switch positions depending on what currency or qualifications. But whoever's on the right is watching you, sees this big light show. And then as we continue playing this, and I've got the audio off, right? But normally the light that you see now reflecting off the water gets higher and higher and you aren't. So what's going on now? 
like I said, I'm just looking at the altitude and the airspeed and the AOA, and is this thing flying or not? The boss, honestly, Commander Luce was his name, made a great call. He said jettison. Real quick, very brief. And I mean, from the time he said jettison to my finger hitting that button was a nanosecond. And you know better than I do. What's this drop tank hold? 2,600 pounds, something like that? Uh, about 2,400. Yeah, but then the tank itself, right. Yeah, so I just dumped that thing. And you see that here, right? Is that this little yeah. flash and then the little splash? Flash, yeah. Even prior to that, he says, keep it climbing off the cat or check your engines off the cat, right? That's the deputy CAG that says that. So I watched this thing this morning. I haven't watched it for probably 15 years. I must say it's anxiety inducing. <laughs> I can imagine. So I kind of refreshed. And the guy that says, check your motors off the cat was the deputy CAG. He was right behind me in line to take off. Okay. And now I'm just like literally maintaining 8.1 alpha. And I'm at 150, 160 feet, not able to climb. I'm in full burner with both motors. I haven't shut the left one down yet. So 8.1 is the max L over D, right? So the best lift for the least drag, it's where you want to go when you have a problem in the FA-18 Charlie. Yeah. Okay. And then at some point, again, folks can listen to it. We'll keep the audio clean here. But rooting around slow and low at night over the water is not where you want to be. So at some point, someone yells at you to get out, right? Eject. When I listen to it again, one thing about the Hornet and a HUD aircraft is all the numbers are digital. There's not a lot of trend information like an analog clock type gauge. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me, say your altitude or something like that. And right when I keyed the mic to read what my radar altimeter was saying, the numbers changed from whatever, 160 to 170 or something like that. And I stammered because it was changing. I was about to say 170 and then I changed it to 160. And I think in retrospect, they took that. I was behind the airplane. I didn't know what I was looking at. So right after that, I mean, half a dozen eject, eject calls. But I'm still flying. You know, the airplane's staying level, albeit, granted, it's like 150 feet and it's dark and I'm just pointed out in the middle, <laughs> middle of the Yeah. But you're sort of like a nugget because you're new to the airplane, but you're clearly not because you're a department head. So you've been around, you've been around naval aviation. And so I have to think that if this had happened to a brand new lieutenant, the outcome would have been very different as far as the airplane goes. I mean, hopefully he would have been okay. I will tell you, though, as you know, the training that we get is really good. You know, I'm trying to be humble about it. Obviously, I had a few thousand hours of experience or whatever, and that certainly had to help. But, you know, you just kind of, when stuff happens, you just kind of revert to your training. Yeah. I like to think that almost anybody would have done the same thing. Oyster, the scuttlebutt in the fleet, and I'm sure I'm not the first one to mention this, and hence my question earlier about takeoffs and landings being equal, is that you didn't want to eject because you thought you'd already ejected and you wouldn't fly again, or something along those lines. Can we clear the record, or is that true? I mean, was there an element of, I don't want to do that again? Well, again, when I listened to it this morning, I do say, I'm talking to my rep, a guy named Fuzz McClure, Scott McClure, great guy. We're still good friends. Yeah. And he knew my history. I just kind of casually, while I was drilling around out there, just said, I'd rather not have to do this again. He's like, yeah, I get it. And it wasn't really because I didn't think I was going to fly again. I just didn't want to eject over water at night. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. I have an inordinate fear of drowning. So I didn't want to have to be trying to get out of my parachute and all that over the the ocean in the dark. Again, I don't mean to Monday morning quarterback this, but let's just, you know, a couple of guys talking about it. That's cool. In retrospect, 
were there people who later thought bringing you aboard was more risky though than just having you eject? Now, granted, the airplane flew again. It's hard to have that question and answer when we know the outcome. But at the time, what was the decision you think, or what did you hear about later as far as what do we do with, with Oyster here? Because they don't know it's going to be a happy ending in a sense. Yeah. You know, looking back, what was the fallout afterwards of people saying, oh, you guys should have just had him eject? I've never heard anything in those regards. Now, some of the more heavy guys might have had that discussion and debriefed it. But I think the fact that it ended happily kind of obviated any discussion of that with me, certainly. I totally get your point. That's totally legit. Right. Especially after the first wave off. I mean, holy crap, that could end <laughs> ended a lot worse than it actually did. So legit question, but I never heard anything about it. Yeah. You know how it is, right? In the absence of information, a story will get filled in. And 99, I was on JFK. We weren't on deployment yet. So I was in the middle of my JO tour between Nugget and Second Cruise. So, you know, starting to get a little salty. And I think we sat around thinking, well, you know... What if he'd have crashed in the back of the ship? Or I wasn't an LSO, so I certainly wasn't the one talking about it. But at any rate, the point being is the airplane is flying, not well, but it is flying. And as you get lighter, that helps, right? Yep. Did you only have a single centerline tank? What else was on board? Yeah, that's it. You listen to all the audio. I'm kind of flummoxed when I'm talking to the rep because one thing I learned in the RAG, the airplane flies perfectly fine single engine half laps. So I could not figure out why I was needing an afterburner to stay level at a thousand feet downwind, or I just kept dumping, kept dumping, kept dumping, kept resetting my bingo bug lower and lower and lower, <laughs> well below blue water, night mins and all that stuff. But but at that point, you were keeping yourself flying, and that was priority number one. Just a minor detail question, but I can't resist. Did they pretty much stop the launches at that point? Because Maybe they figured it out right away with all the little bits of rubber on the deck. But on the other hand, they don't know. So the DCAD right behind you here in this scene, is he probably done for the night? Yeah, they uh, stopped the launch. And we still had the previous launch airborne. Kind of a funny story is after I actually barricaded, you know, opened the canopy, CAG paddles comes up, we chat for a second, and then we're kind of lollygagging there. One of the flight deck chiefs comes up the boarding ladder and says to me something like, Hey, uh, great job, but 15 of your buddies are still waiting to come down, so we need to expedite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for folks who maybe aren't aware on carriers like, uh, let's see, what are you on here, 64? Is that the Indy? Connie. Connie, that's right. So there's cameras at a lot of different angles. So this is a different angle of you launching from the catwalk of Cat1, essentially, right? Yep. So the idea is that they have cameras at different perspectives so that when something happens like this, they can recreate. And in this case, I mean, there's no question about what happened. You said that they were rushed. You were early, so you had plenty of time, but you're not the one that's checking to make sure the catapult is clear. Right. They come out, they skip a step. In a moment here, we'll see your launch. This camera will pick up a lot of the light of it. So here you are in tension. And this is the young man, I think, over here who's pushing the button. Pushing the button. And he just, it's funny now, you watch him and he just stands there and he's like, hey, what just happened? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to me. Everybody talks about the flight deck being the most dangerous part in the world. And when I first went to the ship, there's millions of people up there, it seems like, but they all have one job, you know? That's right. And so you can see the light bounce off the JBD that was just going down and a few others there. But otherwise, 
yeah, it's somewhat, dare I say, unremarkable. Yeah. And now people are wandering around like, okay, wait, what just happened? On the other hand, there's probably like here, here's the weight board guy, right? Yeah. He's like, hey, you're next. Here's your weight. Yeah. All right. Clearly you're dumping, you're in distress. They're going to need to do something. So they rig the barricade and give us a quick refresher on, you know, normally we come down and we hit the wires. Anyone who's interested in watching us this far rap about this oyster knows that you've got catapults and arresting gear and everything else. But the barricade is like a, what, a last ditch effort to essentially pluck you out of the air and, and wrap you up like mama's arms. Yeah, exactly. You know, if, it certainly didn't hurt that I was a LSO for eight years prior to this because I kind of knew what to expect. But yeah, barricade, you know, if somebody loses a hook, obviously they're not going to stop. If your fuel state gets so low or you don't have a wave off capability, in like my case, they'll barricade you. You know, it's just like a 20 foot high nylon net that catches you and it works like as long as you don't go too high. Yeah. So you were smart and did your homework this morning. I did not. So do we not have on this video you sent me the uh, the rest of the story? You mean the whole, the actual barricade? Yeah. The safety board made this tape. Okay. A buddy of mine was on the board. So they synced it to the audio. In the middle, you just listen to all the comms for like 30 minutes, and then it picks up real time again when we start talking about actually doing the barricade and stuff. So this barricade is like a giant net, right? And the yep. idea is, unlike what you normally want to do, which is come down and go to full power in the wires, when you come down on a barricade, you're going to come down and you're going to chop the power just like we used to do in the old days with the straight deck carriers. Exactly. Okay. If you are able to eventually listen to the long version, there's this big discussion about getting me up to about 3,000 feet, setting up a 700 foot per minute rate of descent to test and see whether I'm going to have wave off capability. Okay. Because I've been in afterburner the entire time just to stay level and then climb a little bit if I needed to. I don't ever really get a good chance to do that. So the first time I lowered the gear, and as soon as I lowered the gear and pulled a little power, the right engine, the one that's working, started compressor stalling. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a significant compressor stall in the Hornet, but it was loud, and there's orange flames coming out right by my face. I'm like, holy crap, I think this thing's going to give up the ghost. And, you know, there's a discussion about the picket ship down there because I think it's going to quit, and I don't want the airplane to land on them. And anyway, so honestly, the first look I take at the ship, there's a little bit of a delay in getting the barricade set up. I'm out there at 10 miles saying, hey, I'd like to turn in. I don't want to get too far away. Mm -hmm. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. On my first approach, I hit the glide slope. I start down. I pull a little power. As soon as I pull power, the compressor saws start. So I add power, go a little high, 
pull power because I'm high, compressor stall. So I get into this do loop where I keep having to have power to make the compressor stall go away. Good on the backup CAG paddles, a guy named Flats Jensen. He waved me off a ways out there and I missed the barricade. I don't know. My hook probably missed the top of the barricade by just a couple feet. Yeah, not by very much, as I recall watching it. Yeah. So just speaking of the LSOs while we're watching, and this isn't the best quality, I'll have to go find the other one, but there you can see you're, you're powering over it. They're obviously bringing out the A-team on the platform, right? So both CAG paddles, if the one wasn't flying, I assume, are out there and get rid of all the looky-loos. Yeah, Max Stout and uh, Flats Jensen were the two CAG paddles. And there were a couple of looky-loos out there. I mentioned Gadget. He was out there. One of my squadron buddies actually snuck out into the port catwalk behind the resting <laughs> gear off and watched. <laughs> yeah. And I think they did clear off most of the flight deck, you know, made everybody kind of stand over in front of the island or right. whatnot. So this is where they saw the piece flapping down the left side as you come and do a, a low flyby of the barricade, which, oh, by the way, we just recently had, as you and I are recording this, an A3 episode. And you may recall that seven people perished one night when an A3 hit the top of a barricade and went into the water. So I can't believe you mentioned that because as we discussed earlier, I'm only on like episode 20 of your podcast. So I've got a lot of catching up to do. So I've been to LSO school three times, I guess. When I waved off, that A3 hitting the barricade is kind of burned in every LSO's memory because we watch it at LSO school and it's horrible to watch. When I waved off there, my left hand was as far forward as it was going to go. So I took my left hand and put it on the ejection handle and told myself, if I feel any kind of tug, I'm pulling. That A3 thing was rolling through my mind. They didn't have that option, unfortunately, not especially with seven people, but even in a three-person A3. All right. Not saying I would have had the wherewithal to do this, but did the thought occur to you to raise the hook maybe at all? No, it didn't. I don't know if anybody told me to do that or not. I think the LSO might have said it, but I don't think I did. Again, I'm not questioning you. Please don't misunderstand. So, All right. So you go around, and what's your fuel state at this point? On the wave off, I think my state's like, 1.1, something like that. 1,100 pounds. And so again, for those who aren't familiar, generally at a normal airfield like Lemoore, yeah. at night, and in the daytime, you can land at about 2,000. At night, you generally want to land about 2,500. Yeah. You almost never land at the boat at night with 2,500 or 2,000 or 1,100. Yeah. So maintenance told me after I landed that they measured and I had 380 pounds. Wow. <laughs> wow. I ran a burner the whole time. <laughs> so I kind of jumped there to the end of this one, but let's go back. So by the time you come down the second time, are you feeling a little better about, okay, I know what this thing can do now, or because I'm lighter, it's... You'll see these flashes every now and then. It's the compressor stall as I'm coming down. To be fair, that was the point of my question, Oyster, about, okay, you've got one questionable engine and the other one's rolled back, Yeah. right? I mean, if it had done a big stall there right at the ramp, and put you into the back of the ramp, we could have lost you and others, theoretically. And again, I don't have an agenda here. I'm just Monday morning quarterbacking. Oh, you're absolutely right. And that's legit, but it is what it is. So yeah. after the wave-off, that was really the first time I had been able to test my wave-off capability. So as I'm climbing out, I keyed the mic and said to Max, the Kaget, I just said, Max, I think I can do this. You know, the Airwing commander comes on the radio and says, turn down, wind. What's your state? I think that gave Max some comfort that I felt good. Where was the CAG watching from? Up a tower? 
I assume he was up in Pride Flight or something. I don't know. Kick everyone else out and uh, bring him down. Okay, so we can see the strobes, and that's what you were saying a moment ago, isn't what we're seeing back here, where you can actually see the light bouncing off the water. Those are compressor stalls. Yeah. And it's worth also mentioning that the right engine in the F-18 Hornet is responsible for your high two system for raising and lowering your gear. So you didn't have any trouble the couple times you cycled your gear? Nope. Worked like a champ. You know what else is impressive to me is that I never lost my uh, INS, never even hiccups. The electricity worked great. So you had a good velocity vector because this would have been even harder in standby mode, right? I can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Normally when I'm coming down, I'm getting yelled at for power anyway because I used to be terrible at night. We had a pass, I used to call it the Jello one arrival. The LSOs <laughs> would debrief it. There was never anything at the start to, in the middle. It was always not enough power in close, low at the ramp, no grade one. Like, dang it. Yeah. So in this case, you're coming down and you want to kind of hit a little early, yep. not super early because you, you don't have any margin. But again, when you're hitting now, your hook is still down. You're hoping to catch a wire, but instead of going to full power, you're going to idle. What wire did you end up grabbing a wire or was it the barricade? It did. You'll laugh. It hook skipped the one, two, and snagged the three. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure they gave you an okay anyway, probably an okay underline. But yeah. All right. So it hook skipped all that. Did you have any like instant of, wait, I got to go to full power? Oh, no, I don't. I mean, again, you were CAC paddles. No, he just said cut, cut, cut. And I just brought him to idle and bounced along. And I was fortunately uh, lucky, rather be lucky than good. I was right on center line and it worked like it was supposed to. And you turned off your lights. So, you know, cool hand Luke here. Oh, yeah, I usually turn off the lights anyway when you bring the throttles to idle. But again, for those who listen, there's a bit of elation that is aired here on the radio, isn't there? Yeah, you know what? Ever since I was a kid, I don't know why, but I've always used the phrase victory whenever something good happens. And it just came out. Yeah. Victory. You know, <laughs> I was feeling pretty good about it. Oh, absolutely. As you should. Did going through the barricade with the canopy, did it feel a little bit at all like going through a car wash? I mean, was it like right next to the canopy or? I didn't even notice it. Okay. You know, it happened so fast. I just knew that I hit it and I was stopping and shut the engines down. And, you know, there was a sea of cranials and helmets off to the right. And dudes were had their hands up, you know, it was like Rocky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So again, just to discuss the minutiae here, they're going to keep some tension on the airplane until they can put some chocks under it put a tow bar on it, right? Yep. Connect the tractor. Okay, at that point, we feel pretty good. But we're also going to have, because we don't know if it's got brakes, we're going to have people walking with chocks next to the tow in case it breaks free or something, they can throw it under there. Yep. But what do they do with the barricade? Do they disentangle you or do they just, uh, I guess we have to have commercials here. Do they disentangle you or do they just disconnect it from the flight deck and just have you drag the thing around? You know what? I don't really know. It's kind of behind the cockpit. So I just opened the canopy and saved my seat, you know, and got out. And then I just left the flight deck. <laughs> You've done your job. You know, I tried to minimize my time on the flight deck at night anyway. So I just yeah. left. I didn't watch until the airplane or any of that. Yeah, okay. PR shop and took my gear off and walked in the ready room and guys were like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. So in a sense, this was a mishap. Obviously, you and I know that it is. But for everyone else, right, we have categories of mishap, A, B, and C, depending on the amount of damage or if there's a death. So I have to think with two destroyed engines and a bunch of bodywork that this was a category or a class, I forget, A. But when that happens, there's all three of the usual mishap boards, right? You've got the A and B, right. which is just trying to figure out what happened so we can keep it from happening again. Then you've got the JAGs and then the FENAB. So did all of those happen on this one? You know what? I don't recall 
any board other than the mishap board. I did have to give a urine sample. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you were self-medicating, that could have, or God forbid, doing drugs or alcohol on the ship, that could have played into it. Okay, so there wasn't a FUNAP. Interesting. And I think probably because of the circumstances. I can almost guarantee you there wasn't. And in the end, did it, not that I shouldn't ask it this way, but I will, did any heads roll? Was there a particular Cat 1 chief or flight deck officer or somebody who took it on the chin? The officer that was the cat officer in charge of that cat as i recall i could be incorrect but as i recall he was like suspended for a week we were undermanned stuff happens yeah how about larger navy did there become checklists for a catapult launch to make sure we right because that's how checklists came to be is yeah early airplane days we crashed because someone forgot to take off the gust lock or something you know what i don't think there were any lasting changes that i'm aware of really you know, there were some kind of bizarre recommendations like make the slot seal white so it stands out so you can see it. But it was obvious what had happened. They had not followed the checklist. The checklist was already there. You just got to follow it. Yeah. So one interesting story, and I tell you this not to, in no way to try to pat myself on the back or anything like that. But to me, the coolest part of the whole story was a couple days later, I was in the wardroom. One of the shooters was like the first Hornet guy to get a shooter tour. Exactly. And he volunteered (laughs) for it. They promised him something. A guy named Dennis Lazar. I don't know if you've ever known him. Laser was his call sign. And I was in the war room. He sat down with me and he said, hey, Oyster, can you do me a favor? I'm like, sure. He says, one of my petty officers was the one that was supposed to clean up that cat. And he's not working on the flight deck anymore. He's scared. He thinks he could have killed you. Blah, blah, blah. He said, would you go talk to him? And I said, sure. And I'm like, oh, God, what am I going to say to this kid? <laughs> then then Laser says, here's his story. A week before leaving on cruise, he's got a wife and a brand new baby, like a month old, and his wife left him. Left the baby with his parents, tried to get a hardship and get out of the cruise. They said, we can't do it, but when we get to the Gulf, we'll fly you home and, you know, whatever. Fast forward the next day or that afternoon, you know, Aviators never go into the cat where the guys are working the catapults and whatnot. So I said, where's he work? And he, he told me. So I went, I can still picture it. I kind of poked my head through the hatch and all these dudes are in there, these enlisted guys, and they're looking at me. I'm in a flight suit right. and they're like, uh, and I said, Hey, is petty officer, I won't say his name here. And they kind of pointed, they just kind of went like this. They didn't say anything, they pointed. So I went back into where he was relaxing. Again, I walked in and he popped to, you know, stood at detention. I'm like, oh, hey, easy, easy. Introduced myself and said, hey, I was talking to your division officer. He says, you don't want to work on the flight deck. Yes, sir. And he's hanging his head and he's subdued, you know. And I said, he also told me about your personal situation. I just said, you know, in 20 years, your little daughter is going to probably sometime ask you what you did when you were in the Navy. And you don't want to tell her that you spent your last month sitting down here, not doing what you were trained to do. So like two days later, I'm taxiing around the flight deck and I see him and we make eye contact, huge thumbs up. You know, to me, that was the best part of the whole thing Yeah, was that he ended up back there doing what he was supposed to do. That is a good ending. I mean, obviously we've got you, we've got the airplane, we've got this young man who obviously hasn't forgotten about it. Yeah. Any idea whatever became of him? No, you know, I tried to get in touch with him a couple of times and had some leads. I contacted Laser and he lost track of him. I would like to 
you know, maybe someday we'll have some fluke chance to meet, but I haven't been able to make it happen yet. Well, maybe in the off chance that he sees this uh, and someone knows who he is, you can have him email the show and I'll get you guys in touch. But yeah. Wow. Oyster. Well, first off, by the way, I just jumped right to it. I always just turn on the recording right away when we get started, because I think it's fun to just get to know each other while we're recording. But I didn't even acknowledge that you emailed me again. It's been a little bit over a month, I think, ago and just said that you listen to the show. And I always said, with all due respect to the folks that didn't live this life, I'm always thrilled when people like you say that you listen and like it because, you know, it is in this business, you stick your neck out. And a lot of times you get a lot of grief from people. Yeah. But the fact that you listen and find value is enormously, not vindicating, that's the wrong word, but validating, I guess, for me. So. Yeah. So I was picking my son up at school at the start of the summer and I had caught up on all of the other history podcast is what I usually listen to. And I, I had to actually subscribe to yours when it started. When did it start? 2018 or something? January 1st, 18. That's right. Yeah. But I had never listened to it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm out of other things. So I'll listen to this. And I listened for a 15 hour drive home. And then when Dud came on, I texted Dud and I'm like, Hey dude, I heard you on fighter pilot podcast. He's a good friend. He was in our sister squadron on, on that crew. Okay. 151. You need to ask him if you haven't already about his family military history. I don't know if you've done that or not. So he is our first voice on our new show, The Merge, where we talk about naval aviation in 2008 because we tell a story of a midair. He tells a little bit about, yeah, third generation. And oh my gosh. His, I think it was dad or grandfather was Gray Eagle for a while. And it goes back to the revolution. Fitzhugh Lee, Light Horse Harry Lee. I mean, it's incredible. Is he like Lieutenant Dan? It's amazing. Fitzhugh is a unique name, but I know it from American history, from the revolution. So I asked him one night in the order room, I said, hey, are you related? And he goes off and tells me the whole family history. I'm like, holy crap, dude. Yeah. He comes up on the show quite often because I also use him when people ask me, especially the young people that want to do what we did. Hey, do I have to be an engineering major? I said, no, I have a friend who was a music major. Yeah. That was always fun because whenever we'd pull into port, you know, the air wing would all congregate in a couple of places and he'd usually be at the piano, you know, playing something and we'd all yeah. have a good time. You meet some talented people. I roomed with a, an Olympic pole vaulter. Wow. We had a guy who was a poultry science major. I mean, you meet all kinds. Of- <laughs> <laughs> that's a new one. I got to use that poultry science. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Like I said, I'm sure it was the same for you, but when you were in, right, anytime you tried to do anything at all, or if you met for a social engagement, like whatever you were wearing, if it was at least even a little bit different, everybody would get on you. And so I just think that the fact that people listen, that live the life and find value in it is validating. And I think partly it's because I'm not standing up here trying to promote how great I was. I just like telling these stories and getting people on the show like you and And that's why, by the way, I started this happy hour thing, because at first I thought, well, could we do an episode titled Barricades and have Oyster come on? And I got so much more and more of these ideas for people. I thought, well, let's just have a casual discussion. We'll play that extra. So that's what we're going to do with this. Well, I'm going to need to catch up. I got a lot of catching up to do with your podcast because I wasn't aware of the happy hour and all that stuff, but it sounds like fun. The happy hour, we sometimes repurpose it for everyone, but mostly we use it for our Patreon supporters as a perk for them. And so I'm basically using your time to get a little uh, donation to the uh, show here, Oyster. Yeah, that's all good. If I need to make a contribution, I can, but I haven't had to yet. No, and then, like I said, like on a holiday, you know, 4th of July or Thanksgiving or something, 
hey, uh, we're taking a break, but oh, here, check out Oyster's happy hour replay of the barricade or something. So we'll see. Sure. And I'll send you a link. It's unlisted on YouTube, but I'll send you a link if you want to share it with people you can. Okay, so, sure. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's been almost an hour and I don't want to keep it too long, but do you still do any flying on the side? I know you fly for the airline, but do you do any little airplane flying? No, you know, after we didn't really talk about my career path, but I got out, went to the airlines after my department head tour and then got furloughed right away, went to the Air Force, ended up in FAA flight inspection. So I flew the King Air and the Lear 60 for three or four years doing flight inspection and then just went back to my original airline company. Oh, wow. So in other words, if there's a procedure that I can fly like an ILS or an RNAV, you're out there with a specially equipped airplane to make sure it's legit? Exactly. It's in space or where they're supposed to be and at the yeah. correct micro amperage and all. It's above my head. Most That's crazy. I just put the airplane where it's supposed to be. Did any of your Navy buddies give you grief for going over to blue? I guess Navy's blue too, but yeah, tons of them did. And honestly, my Air Force buddies, I was in the Air Force for about eight years. And when I retired, they're like, you got to have a retirement ceremony. And I said, well, you know, I don't really want to ask all my Navy buddies to come to Oklahoma City. And to be honest with you, my kids are grown now and all the stories I'd want to tell, probably they shouldn't be hearing anyway. So, you know, it's all good. <laughs> we had a listener question once, and I'm going to ask you, I didn't know what the deal was, but when you went to the Air Force, did you get Air Force wings or did you wear your Navy wings or what, how did that work? It's funny that you asked that question because there were five of us that ended up at Tinker. Okay. Navy guys, Tomcat guy, three Hornet guys and the P3 guy. And they treated us great. Don't get me wrong. Different culture. Everything you've heard is absolutely true. We dug into the regs in the Air Force regs, uniform regs. You can wear two warfare specialties. So we all put our gold wings below the Air Force wings. And we got a lot of cross-eyed looks for a while until they realized it was in the regs that we could do that. Yeah. So that was our little pushback. <laughs> what years were you there? Oh, three. So I still live in Oklahoma. But I checked in in May of three and then retired in 11, I think. Did you ever talk to the E6 Mercury guys at all? Yeah, my neighbor across the street when I moved here walks across the street and looks at me and says, hey, are you in the military? And I'm like, God, is that obvious? <laughs> he was a Navy S3 guy who had gone E6s, and we're still great friends. Oh, cool. I want to play the name game because I went to UCLA with Ed McCabe, call sign Tick. Oh, uh, of course. Do you know Tick? Yeah. So I know Tick through my neighbor. Okay. Oh, how funny. Yeah, Tick became the Commodore, and I don't know where he is now. He's at the War College in Monterey. Okay, yeah. He's still playing the game. Get this. So right before COVID, I fly up to Monterey to talk to his bunch of ensigns that are stashed there about to go to flight school. And we recorded an E6 episode. And he goes, hey, just do me a favor and sit on that for about a month. I just want to ask a couple questions for my higher ups on the things we talked about. All right, no problem. Because as you know, but for everyone watching or listening, the E6 is that eh, not a lot of spotlight. Go out and make sure we can talk if the world really gets ugly yep. to our ballistic submarines. And so, no kidding, within two months of recording, his community, even though he's in Monterey, not Tinker, puts him in charge of, I forget what they call it, but like all front-leaning media and I don't even know what to call it. Basically, he's now in charge of, let's make sure we're keeping tabs on what gets out and what's being said. Oh and he goes, Jello, it would be really bad if I had that come out right after they give me that job. 
I said, all right, I get it. You know, no big deal. It was fun to see you. We had lunch, whatever. So I had it on Patreon for a while. And he goes, actually, can you take it down from there too? No problem. Delete. And so people sometimes ask me, when are we going to get an E6 episode? And I said, probably never. Yeah. <laughs> I even deleted the files. Their mission is very interesting. I mean, you look at this giant yeah. 707 platform and go, eh, what are they doing? Well, and I thought he made it interesting, but you know, just some of it, they just want to control. So, Hey, no problem. Yeah. I'll tell you, you know, that's the one thing if I ever do wake up in the middle of the night is, are they going to knock on my door and say, Hey, is this your voice? Did you say this? Remember when you left the Navy and you signed this? Yeah. I could see where you, ha- I'm like, I'm glad I'm not him. Because you can kind of get to talking with one of your compatriots, and it's like you're in the ready room, and next thing you know, FBI is knocking on your door. <laughs> yeah, or NCIS or whatever. And, and that's my hope is that that never happens. But yeah. we try real hard. And you know, I always ask my guests, hey, you can be specific to a point, but anecdotal is okay too, right? So for example, for an air-to-air timeline, hey, look, we start a long ways away, and as we work down, we get closer and closer. We have these things we do but I'm not saying necessarily at what ranges and I don't remember half of them anyway. Yeah. Plus they've changed. So I listened to your one with Mongo not too long ago and they were talking about sniff and stuff like that. And I'm like, "Mm." yeah, well, there's a couple others where I won't mention them, but there was one episode I had grand from top gun episode listened to. And again, please don't amplify, but I said, Hey, my guest and I are talking about this. And so can you just listen and see what you think? He goes, yeah, I think you're safe. (laughs) So we aired it, but I won't even say what it was because it gets the point across. But, you know, and then like, even if you see it on Google, but it was classified, you're not supposed to acknowledge or talk about it. So yeah, that's always my big fear. But obviously nothing with the barricade was particularly sensitive other than again, in a mishap, they might ask like that young man that you talked to, there could be some privilege that he might've told the A and B of, yeah, my wife was leaving me and I was doing right. this or that or whatever. But in the end, it's not like a classification type of thing. So. Yeah. All right. Well, I was asking you about doing a little other flying and uh, I don't either, frankly. And every time I see something like what happened with Snort, I think uh, maybe it's okay because you could have very easily been killed on June 23rd, 1999, but you weren't. And if you were to go out and fly these little airplanes, you can get killed just as quickly, I feel like. And I don't know if you knew Snort. I didn't personally, but I knew of him. Well, now what's Snort's real name? Can you say? Dale Snodgrass. Yeah, I remember hearing that story, but... Yeah, just in the last month or so. Yeah, so I have a couple of Navy friends that in civilian airplanes that have met their end. And uh, of course, we both have tons of friends. Oh, yeah. You know, I need all my fingers and all my toes and all of them were better sticks than I ever was, so... Yeah, they took care of me on my CAG Ops tour. When I was in CAG 5, they came out to Japan. We were on Indy, okay. and they were banging the one wire. We renamed <laughs> the Royal Aces. <laughs> <laughs> they took care of my flight gear when I was CAG 5 OPSO. Nice. And I would always keep a little tribute to the number of guys. And that wasn't just the guys I'd heard of. That was guys I knew. Yeah. And so dangerous business for sure. So, yeah. Well, Oyster, I'm going to consider you a uh, friend of the show. Thanks very much. And uh, this has been fascinating. I'm glad you laid to rest, if you will, some of the preconceived notions of, oh, he didn't want to eject again because they wouldn't let him fly, or, oh, he should have ejected because it was too dangerous. So now we've got it straight from, dare I say, the horse's mouth. I always hated that expression, but. Yeah, that's cool. Another funny, the next night, I was up till three in the morning. I had a real funny phone call with my wife, but my roommate, the opso, it's like, dude, we're out of pilots. You want to fly tonight? I'm like, sure. You know, I'm going to have to do it later. So I went flying the next night. <laughs> 
yeah, you must not have been in a FENAP because they would have had to wait for the adjudication. But I guess on certain mishaps, they don't have to if it's very obvious. But at any rate, all right, so you went back out with a little trepidation, I assume. Come on, at least a little. Yeah, there was a little, oh, God, you know, I don't know how to describe it, just uh, nervousness. But once the cat shot was gone, all good. <laughs> Did you get a little medicinal brandy maybe the uh, the night of? No, like I said, there's adrenaline going. And I'll go ahead and tell the story because I think it's hilarious. My wife is a perfect military wife. She's totally low-key, uh, unimpressed by any of us. That's right. Probably on the to the opposite, <laughs> actually. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sitting in this room with the Admiral, CAG, and my skipper. And they said, hey, you need to call your wife. You need to call Carrie. I'm like, why do I need to call Carrie? Well, with email now, she's going to hear your name. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's probably legit. So I don't know what time it was back in Lemoore. It was two or three in the morning on the ship. So what is that, two, three time zones? So they get me the little POTS line or whatever it was in Marset. And it rings, it rings. And they're all sitting there watching me. They're like, is she going to answer? And she answers and she's like, hello. Yeah. And I said, hey, it's me. I'm not on the ship. And she's like, okay. And I said, Little thing happened out here. If you hear my name in an email or something, it's all good. I'm fine. And she goes, okay, and hangs up. It was like a 10-second phone call. And they're looking at me like, that's it? She doesn't want to chat with you? <laughs> no. She was no, she wants her sleep. Uh, God bless her. How long have you guys been married? Oh, gosh. Uh, 93, so whenever that is. 20. Come on, you're supposed to know that. All right, well, it'll be 27. 27, right. yeah. We actually had two weddings, one by Judge, so I could get her an ID because she joined me in Japan. And then we had another one. We almost did that, but ended up not doing it. As I always like to say, I was engaged for my first cruise, married for my second cruise, one kid for my third, two kids, you know, (laughs) kind of march up through your cruises. But all right, Oyster, well, I'm going to hit stop. Don't hang up, but I really appreciate you telling the story and spending some time today. This is cool. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.